if I listen to anything, it's probably NPR. I'm so old. Um, but yeah, like it's, it seems like the province of, of older people, which it is because we all grew up and we're all old and crotchety now. Whatever. I loved I loved this fucking movie. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cinema Ball. I'm Carolyn Pettit, and I'm joined by my fellow 1980s teen folk hero, Ebony Astor. Hey, Woo! Ebony. Hey, Kara. That's exactly what a teen folk hero would say, Ebony. <laughs> I hope so, because that's what I'm going with. <laughs> this is episode 14, the sixth entry in our second round. Cinema Ball is a ridiculous excuse for Ebony and I to talk about movies. The attacking player picks a goal film, the defender tries to prevent their opponent from reaching that film, and each week we alternate linking one film to another via actors, directors, or other members of the production crew. Now, this is a very special episode of Cinema Ball. Ebony has scored the first proper goal in the history of the game, and today we are here to talk about her goal film, the Legend of Billie Jean. That means it's time to update the old Cinema Ball scoreboard. I scored a field goal for three points in the first round of play, but with this goal, Ebony has scored five points, which puts the standings at Ebony 5, Carolyn 3. Of course, I'll spend more time crying about my defeat in this round later, but first, let's get into it. Ebony, start us off on The Legend of Billie Jean. Uh, before we do that, I am hoping that our producer will be able to put some sound effects behind that score that you just gave, because I think we glossed over it a little too quickly. <laughs> I just <laughs> want the listeners to luxuriate yeah. in the sound of that Ebony 5, yeah. Carolyn I make, I, 3. 3, yes. Yeah. Yes, no, uh, get, get your glory, Ebony, and you know... Enjoy I, it. I feel, Savor listen, it for all it's worth. I am as excited as uh, Jason Mendoza watching Blake Bortles play in The Good Place. I yeah. just, I have, I like to think that, um, and I'm talking about myself in the, um, at a remove here, you know, in the third person, but I just, I had a lot of heart in this game and, you know, you I, did. I left it all in the field. Um, yeah. You know, I, uh, I made some strategic decisions. You know, there was just a lot of precision to my, to my play and it paid off. It paid yeah. off, you know? Yeah. You know, we, you're right. We, we didn't do a proper, you know, like the inner, the interview with the athletes. Yeah. You're right. As they're walking off the field right after they've won the big game, you know, you really should have had somebody standing off the, right off the field to say, you know, Hey, Ebony, you know, you played incredibly well out there today. You really earned that victory. You know, what, what are your thoughts yeah, at this moment? You know, you, yeah, you deserve that. And don't that worry, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring that back uh, at the end of this good. show because I, <laughs> I have no doubt that this this might have been a one-off. Um, this game <laughs> turns out to be incredibly hard to play when you're playing with a smart opponent who continually yeah. keeps the cinema ball away from you. So, yeah, I'm just going to... Um, you know, recline back into this I, victory and and enjoy it. But that's that's let, that's let for me, later. Let me let me do let me quickly do the ebony and let me quickly let me quickly do the Bond villain thing and say, Ebony, you are a worthy adversary. <laughs> you know, like you know how the bad guys like uh -huh. there's like this this kind of respect. You know, yeah, exactly, the, the, exactly. The, the, yeah, yeah. So I just want you to know, like. I, I play this game with you because you are a worthy adversary. I am um, I am so, so pleased right. with that. I'm also really pleased with your version of a Bond villain voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I will say before I before I launch into um, discussion of the legend of Billie Jean, final um, introductory, you know, just worthless thought. Yeah. This game has taken yeah. over so much of my brain space. Even though we're now at the end of the second round, that I'm I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like. Um, you know, kind of uh, options we can do for round three, you know, kind of ways yeah. we can mix it up, whatever. I, I even started dreaming about it. I had a dream that we took uh, Cinema Ball to like its furthest extent and it became this whole kind of strangers on a train thing whereby we just kept yelling crisscross at each other i don't know where the murder came oh, in but we Chris, really crisscross yeah we yes we, we took it real seriously uh yeah. so anyways let's let's talk about the legend That's, of billy jean yeah, let me quickly sorry yeah. but but uh, you know i have to quickly clarify for any listeners out there we are not referring when we say crisscross. We are not referring to the early '90s hip hop duo. Uh, we are referring to a line from the Alfred Hitchcock film *Strangers on a Train*. Yeah, so, um, which yeah. was marvelous, marvelously um, played with in the film *Throw Mama from the Train*, which I granted have not seen since I originally saw it in theaters, but I remember laughing a lot. So. <laughs> But what a, what a show y'all are getting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so The Legend of Billie Jean. So if you've been listening to this round, you know, I've talked briefly about how this film was so foundational for me as a young girl um, because I, I love the kind of absolute respect this film pays to its teenage heroes and you know they the film is very clear about them being heroes so um just a quick synopsis the legend of billy jean is about a working class teen named billy jean davy uh and her younger brother binks they are forced to go on the run with a couple of their friends after an unprovoked attack on binks results in his uh scooter being vandalized in her effort to get the the bully who is responsible and his father to pay for those damages, um, the the bully's father, whose name is Mr. Pyatt, is accidentally shot, and the the teenagers go on the run because they they recognize that they are not precisely you know kind of uh, reliable yeah. narrators as far as law, local law enforcement would go. And there's a lot of stuff bought up brought up in there in terms of like yeah. you know their their class status they are they are yeah. poor uh working class folks who who live in a trailer and i think it's important to mention that uh that prior to being shot uh mr pyatt does try to force himself upon billy jean right yeah there's, absolutely there's, absolutely yeah. and, and yeah. we'll get into that later but the, oh yeah, yeah the kind of inciting um, incident. It's not just, as you say, that, that Mr. Pyatt doesn't want to pay for the damages that his his ne'er-do-well, good-for-nothing kid, Hubie, um, has been getting Hubie. away with in the town of Corpus Hubie. Christi, which is, which is yeah. where this movie is set. But yeah, he also, you know, in the, I'm blanking on the actor's name right now. I'll, I'll look it up. But he is such, he does such great work, um, you know, in this menacing, very oily role. Uh, as this man who recognizes that Billie Jean occupies a very vulnerable position. She is poorer 
than he is. She is a woman and she is young and he takes advantage of that and he does try to assault her. And so, yeah, in the course of trying to get away, um, he, uh, Mr. Pyatt is shot, the kids go on the run. And so the film follows their journey across this, you know, Corpus Christi and the surrounding area as they connect with other young people. They commit <laughs> acts of heroism. They also get into some fairly slapsticky kind of adventures in a mall. Yep. Um, but, but yeah, you know, as, as Carol said, you know, when introducing this show, they become folk heroes um, in a way that I just, I was so galvanized by. Um, and I loved this movie as a kid. I watched it a million times because it used to be on those free weekends that HBO um, would, you know, toss out into the ether like a, you know, a, a potentate dispensing, you know, gold coins. And I would yeah. eat that shit up. Um, so I've seen this movie a thousand times where I had as a kid. I had not watched it as an adult. And I was really looking forward to watching it again, but I was also so wary because there's so much from my childhood that just doesn't hold up. I mean, we've had conversations in the office about like going back to, you know, 80s or 90s sitcoms um, and just being like, wow, the it's not that the standards were lower, but they were so different. Yeah, they were just different. I think they didn't have... Yeah, I mean, it was uh, things have happened since then to to shift television into a more like episodic yeah. format, uh, you know, uh, where where narratives are kind of more ongoing and interlinked, and and you know, uh, moving away a lot from the kind of the uh, like the the one camera, you know, sitcom setup and all that stuff. Yeah, um, and I think you know, I don't. I, I, I am probably unqualified to say this because I don't watch, uh, t to completion anyway, a lot of movies aimed at teens these days. But my sense, um, from the way they are packaged in any way, is that mainstream film these days uh, marketed towards teens tends to be much slicker and much more focused on, you know, either the um, solidly middle class or above. You know, it, it's really in the realm of like independent or art house film that we see stories about the, the kind of kids who are in the, the legend of Billie Jean. I think there was, I don't know, there was, in my mind, maybe it was just the movies that I was seeing, but back in the 80s, I felt like we got more scrappy working class yeah. kids, you know, kids I agree. on their I agree. own. In the same way that like, you know, when we watch uh, Stranger Things, for instance, you know, these are some of these kids come from single parent households. Yeah. They're on their own a lot, riding the streets on their BMX bikes and, and whatever. And their kids are, or their parents are like bus drivers or, you know, they work in stores. It's not... You know, the kind of yeah. stultifying ennui of the upper middle class kid in the suburbs. Right. And, you know, as you say, yeah, the 80s, uh, you know, gave us uh, Lloyd Dobler, John mm -hmm. Cusack's very kind of working class uh, uh, male romantic figure and say anything. And, yeah, a number of other examples of that. And, I, and um, yeah, I don't have the, the, the knowledge of current teen cinema to, um, to, to really say for sure whether whether, you know, poor or, you know, sort of working class uh, people are ever still kind of centered in those films. But but I will say that was, what was interesting to me about watching this film, which I had never seen before, was that, um, you know, I didn't have those HBO free weekends. And, and, and so this film, like, I, it doesn't have the cultural 
cachet that so many other 80s films have that are spoken mm-hmm. about in kind of reverential, hushed tones, you know, among people in in like my peer group. Uh, this one I've I'd honestly like never heard of until you selected it as your um, as your goal film. And I find that so strange because if I had seen this film as a young person when it was, you know, first released or any any time around then, I, I definitely would have uh, embraced it and I would have loved it because Billie Jean in particular and the whole crew are these scrappy working class, you know, uh, figures who do uh, have a, you know, set out to have a positive impact on on the way that they're treated and on their kind of community. Yeah. I, um, we'll, we'll get into this. I keep saying this, we'll get into it and I should just get into it. But one of the things that I wasn't able to articulate as a kid, um, but you know, on this recent rewatch was so blown away by, you know, as I said, is the respectful way it treats, um, teenagers and their inner lives and their desires and, and doesn't um, do it in a, a patronizing way in which we, the audience, are encouraged to kind of wink at the silliness of the children. Yes, we absolutely understand where um, Detective Ringwald, played by the wonderful Peter Coyote, is coming from when he tries to convince the kids, like, y'all, you need to bring it on in. I can't protect you out on the road. We can find a way to fix this. We understand that, um, that he is doing that out of, a, out of a place of concern. But nevertheless, we also understand that for these kids, for these teenagers, what they're doing feels so big to them in the way that things feel so big uh, when mm-hmm. you are young, that your world is the city you grow up in or the neighborhood in which you exist. Um, and that the ki- what to adults may seem like petty squabbles, like you know two teenagers fighting over a scooter, you know, has much larger ramifications and causes much uh, deeper feeling than perhaps it would later in life. One sort of cynicism sets in um, and, you know, a bit of that old adult uh, hopelessness sets in. The film does not wink at these kids. And I there was something about watching it as a kid that I realized that was happening and how comparatively rare that was. Um, But the other thing that I picked up on on this recent rewatch um and and wanted to tease out was the okay so i you know joke when i talk about this film about billy jean being a lesbian icon particularly mm-hmm. when she shifts from you know like the the sundresses and you know long golden hair that shines in the sun um and her you know sweet texas drawl but when she you know allows that kind of core of steel um, to be laid bare when she cuts her hair short, when she starts to explicitly emulate Joan of Arc, um, a black and white film of which she is watching along the journey. I fucking melted. I loved it. I am so excited by the figure of the boyish girl um, in, in media. Um, I think in a lot of ways in media criticism, we have swung from the position of saying, okay, there are, there are no women with any kind of primacy in your narrative or, you know, in your text. Um, and the ones that are there only display stereotypically feminine, um, 
uh, kind of qualities to then a response to that, you know, being uh, women outside of that mold. And then the argument is, okay, well, what you've given us is now just a male coded woman, whatever that means, um, you know, uh, so that allows yeah. you to not kind of reckon with what it would actually mean for a woman to be in this role. But I think what often gets left out of that is a recognition of the way that the the binary itself needs to be completely disrupted. There's a way in which Billie Jean becomes more truly authentically herself, even as she puts on what appears to be kind of a costume, which is the costume of Joan of Arc. She, the way she moves her body and inhabits her body feels so free and right in that moment when she sheds those trappings, um, that have, have guided her, you know, young adulthood up to that point. Um, and I just, I, I loved it. I, I, yeah. I love that the film doesn't then, you know, have her um, with the short hair and everything, but really overemphasizing her heterosexual connection to Lloyd. Um, you know, it's just, it, it allows her that space to, to, to be, what she is. I found it electrifying the scene. There's a scene in which, you know, uh, after she watches Joan of Arc, um, she emerges from this house and to where her friends are kind of hanging out outside. And, you know, they, they look over, they look up and first you see her reflection uh, sort of upside down in a pool. She's standing right um, on the other side of a pool. And then the camera pans up and you get the full impact of the dramatic change that she has made to herself, to her appearance. And, um, you know, and she's also wearing this very sort of 80s colorful yeah. <laughs> kind of like jump jumpsuit or sort mm-hmm. of thing. Or, and man, like it is, uh, yeah, like it is definitely powerful. And it is powerful for me. There is some a degree to which for me as a queer woman, like that image ha- also has a certain power in terms of, you know, the ways in which it, it, it does kind of, she is not, she is no longer like inhabiting the gender, the place that, that culture has told her that as a woman, she must inhabit. She has broken free of that. And, and you can tell that she feels liberated by it. And so, and, and witnessing that look of like excitement and liberation in her face as she's sort of like, I don't know, running her hand through her newly cut hair or something. And she, she realizes that she, that this is real and that she has kind of embraced this part of herself that before was covered up. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's exhilarating. It's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And the film did not have to go there. Right. I mean, there's a version of this film in which Billie Jean, you know, um, still watches the Joan of Arc film um, and takes those attributes of Joan of Arc that she wants to emulate, that clarity of purpose, that relentlessness, um, that, that sense of like, you know, um, you know, kind of a, a, a holy cause from which she will not be dissuaded. But, you know, does that and has her just like pull her own hair back into a long ponytail and doesn't actually play with the kind of visual signifiers that I found so exciting um, about this. And it doesn't, although Helen Slater uh, is beautiful. So Helen Slater plays Billie Jean. I did a completely bang up job with the intro to this this section uh helen slater who in the 80s was just coming off the um supergirl which was a a pretty 
um, a modest hit, but a hit nonetheless. Um, and later does like things like The Secret of My Success and Ruthless People, City Slickers. Um, she's she's an absolutely beautiful woman, and I just. I love that, like I said, the the film went there, that it didn't try and have it both ways um, with Billie Jean. And it just rang so true, that kind of drastic change, both to her character, but also to her youth in a way, you know, that just says, no, I'm shedding all of this bullshit. Right. Yeah, and I absolutely love that. I I think, you know, one one thing that I I wish the film had been... uh, sort of more explicit about or more kind of direct about is though um you know okay so so the the sort of inciting incident for uh, for a lot of this is as you said earlier um that Mr. Pyatt um you know atte- basically essentially attempts to 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 rape her um and you know but the film um I feel like it doesn't confront that as directly as it could have or as it should have in the sense that um, in the sense that in their crusade, uh, you know, Billy Jean and her um, her companions on uh, in this little rebellion, you know, they really keep the focus on the sort of the six hundred and eight dollars that the body shop estimated it mm-hmm. would take to repair uh, uh Binks's bike and not so much on like the larger you know system that sort of says that men you know with uh more money more power you know can can treat women this way I mean you know I I just I I did feel like there was a piece for me that was like a piece missing in their in their movement as a result of that Mm -hmm. um and, but you know, so instead, it, it it falls to these sort of like little moments. I think to uh, to sort of almost remind us of of the, the the gender imbalance that exists in their world, and yeah. and of course still in ours. So there's like a little throwaway moment, but one that I that I liked quite a bit um, is you know there's this big um, thing, uh, a big sort of conflict uh, altercation between uh, Billie Jean's gang and, you know, Pyatt's uh, uh, son, Hubie, and his boys mm-hmm. and everything, and the police. Uh, it's basically like a scene from the Blues Brothers. It's yeah. so chaotic and everything at a mall, n- nonetheless. So, um, But, you know, after that whole scene, um, we see a TV reporter there interviewing folks who witnessed the, the event, and, um, you know, and it's a male reporter and he asks this woman, like, did you, you know, what do you think about this whole Billie Jean situation? And she says, well, I think they're, I think they're, uh, you know, I think they're making fun of her or attacking her because she's a woman. And I think it's, I think it's just awful. I think it's disgusting. And, you know, the reporter himself, because this woman is trying to point out that gender is a factor in all of this. And then the reporter kind of dismissively says, well, there you have a woman's perspective. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. like, yeah, like, don't you see that you're kind of part of the whole the whole way of thinking that allows things like this to to happen in the first place? Yeah. And I, I wonder if the film, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world of the film, the idea is that Mr. Pyatt and his son Hubie's, you know, greater crime is this kind of economic um, malfeasance, you know, this exploitation on the economic level, and that his 
um, physical and sexual assault of Billie Jean is just one more. It's just like an addendum to the yeah. main body of his evil, which absolutely is insufficient. Because I think, you know, with the, the film, as these, as these teenagers go on the run and they travel by like this underground network of kids gradually starting to become like, you know, a voice for women and young people and the exploited in general, there's something um, sad about the fact that we can imagine or the filmmakers can only imagine Billie Jean's message and Billie Jean as a as a folk hero resonating so widely among the people if she has an ungendered message. If her message is fair yeah. is fair, which is ultimately the rallying cry um, that, that we arrive yeah. at in the film, you know, this fair is fair, which, okay, she says it in a great way and, you know, she fist pumps like a champ. Yeah. But when you get right down to it, fair is fair is it's not the most like stirring thing to shout yeah but i think that's such an important point is that is that you know one thing i appreciate about this film is that it does show men you know young men mm-hmm. also like embracing and kind of uh falling in line behind this sort of example that billy jean herself uh uh is is leading uh is presenting but um but often their their uh admira- you know their admiration for her is is often mixed with like uh you know some expression of romantic desire like oh i love you i love you so much billy jean you know and you can tell that it has that like also you know i think you're hot or right. you know like it's 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 they're like distancing her as a person to some degree by um by bringing the 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 sexual desi- the element of like sexual desire into it and i mean it's like our culture still has a huge problem with uh it being normal or acceptable uh for you know y- young boys or you know to have um female heroes uh in the same w- way that it's that it's like totally acceptable f- by and large for mm-hmm. young women to have like male figures that they look up to and admire and want to emulate to some degree it's sort right. of considered you know it's like weird or you know wrong often it's seen as weird or wrong if a young boy you know if their hero is um is a, you know a, a female athlete or mm-hmm. you know something like that um and so i appreciated that that this film gave us um, the young men who, who do admire Billie Jean. But, but I think you're exactly right that if, if she had been centering like the element of like sexual assault uh, in, in her, um, in her movement and, and clearly been explicitly, explicitly sort of fighting back against, you know, patriarchy that those men would have felt uh, pretty different about you know, I, I mean, that maybe the film wouldn't have resonated with audiences, young young audiences at the time, because it would have made young men in the audience too uncomfortable right. to, you know, confront that or to be shown that. Yeah. And even within the world of the film, you know, so um, Billie Jean at one point um, when she's out on the road is um, spotted by a group of very young kids who ask her if she can help. A rescue their their young friend who it turns out is being abused by his father um his his drunken father and she walks with them and there's this incredibly you know kind of 
<laughs> like, you know, pump it up moment where you see her striding with purpose with, you know, some, some self doubt in there, but for the sake of these kids, um, you know, gradually walking down the street, getting more and more of a crowd following behind her, she goes to rescue this boy and pulls him out of the clutches of his father. But apart from that moment, yeah, the, the reaction that we see from, um, uh, from the people that she has affected, the ones that we feel the connection is, is really sinking in for our other teenage girls to the point where they are, you know, emulating her look, you know, um, at post Joan of Arc makeover. Um, and also kind of trying to throw themselves on, uh, on the stocks for her, you know, in this very like, I am Spartacus moment where a group of teenage girls (laughs) turn themselves in at a police station, each saying that they're Billie Jean, you know, um, and you know, it needs to get sorted out, but in a very real way, they all do feel like her, you know, they all feel like, yeah, this is, there's something about this moment, this movement, this figure that that is me that is mine yeah that uh yeah i love the whole sequence where we really where we really see that that underground network of billy jeans in action as they are kind of trying to help keep her on the move keep her you know away uh, uh away from the cops or other people who may be after her um you know just you just see all these young women who have who have decided to uh to really embrace uh, what what Billie Jean kind of stands for, and and sort of acknowledge that she that she represents something kind of powerful and and revolutionary to them, and um, yeah, it's just it's it's a very thrilling kind of sequence and very thrilling kind of just uh, uh, in terms of cinematic imagery to see all these young women who who have uh, who have kind of taken this taken the steps to to emulate her her look with the not just the the short hair but often with like the the, the one earring the earring yeah. like dangling on one side which is such you know such a cool kind of 80s uh, oh, 80s she looks look. amazing she looks she did absolutely she does amazing she does you know yeah but, yeah but yeah I mean going back to this notion of you know her needing or being like the only safe way for some of the men in this film to uh, to recognize her as a person is as a you know sexual object as a woman. Yeah, I mean we don't. This movie does not exist if a person like Yeardley Smith, who plays Putter Jacks, um, the fourteen-year-old friend of Billie Jean and Binks, who also goes on the road with them. This movie does not exist if Yeardley Smith is playing the lead. You know, a woman who absolutely is beautiful in her own right, but not in that sort of classic Hollywood way. I mean, as much as we're talking about, you know, Billie Jean kind of shedding the trappings of, you know, others' expectations of her as she, you know, cuts her hair and and changes her look. The fact is she is still a very beautiful woman that, you know, um, you know, exists far to the end of like that spectrum of acceptable beauty. Um, But speaking of Putter Jacks. And and yeah, Yearly yeah. Smith, holy shit! Listen, Yearly Smith constantly delivers. I love her. I love everything about her cherubic face. You know her, yeah, her voice. Her you know iconic voice. Yearly Smith, voice of Lisa Simpson. Um, but the way that Putter engages in her own moment of bravery and how she is so completely herself throughout the film. Um, it just delighted me, you know? Uh, and I was, yeah. 
I, I loved how on this, this freedom journey that they take, Putter gets her period and, you know, she, she thinks of herself as, you know, becoming a woman. And it's a very literal um, kind of, you know, tangible sign of this interior change in her such that at the end, when Billie Jean for Putter and Ophelia's safety turns them in um, so that they're no longer on the road with her, Putter is able to stand up to her abusive mother. Like, it's just, a, it's a small part of the film, but it just demonstrated again that that kind of real heart that the film had and the way that it took um, the, the the kids in it so seriously that it gave them that agency and autonomous autonomy. Absolutely, it's it's uh, it, yeah that that supporting story. You know, uh, uh, Putter may not be Billie Jean. She may not be like much like Billie Jean, but she finds her own kind of strength and her own like she she un- comes to understand if she didn't before her own value as a person to get to the point where she can stand up against uh, against her mother. And, um, you know, I, I, that that's another thing that um, definitely would have made this film kind of resonate with me as a young person is is seeing, you know, young people who, you know, not who not only does the film kind of recognize or, or treat them with respect and acknowledge that they that they their lives have have meaning, have value. But but they kind of um, if they didn't really understand it before, the, the characters themselves kind of come to understand it or 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 think of themselves in those terms by the end of the by the end of the film. Yeah. Um and that's that's yeah, that's really great. Yeah, the 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 last thing I wanted to bring up uh, again, this is something that occurred to me on this this most recent viewing, and of course, it wouldn't have occurred to me when I was watching this film when it came out um, in eighty four, eighty five. But folks, quick peek behind the curtain here. This is the second time we're recording this episode, and so if it seems as if I'm kind of low energy for a film that I profess to love, it's because I gave my heart in San Francisco. I left my heart in San Francisco. Um, I have I have no more. But please trust that this there's a there's a there's a heart shaped space, you know, um, in which the legend of Billie Jean resides. So let me say first of all, first of all, you're doing great. You definitely have. A, a, a lot of energy, and, but also I will say, so I'm right now in the studio that we both were in. To, I'm in the, the Keanu Reeves studio on the Feminist Frequency campus. How much um, How much water weight have you lost from sweating? And and yeah, so I, I'm i literally like this whole time, sweat has been like running down my forehead into my, <laughs> oh my eyes. Um, and so, but I feel like it's good as for as we talk about this film because this film takes place during a real heat wave in yeah. Corpus Christi such that you hear uh, the judge on the radio, the mm-hmm. local kind of, um, you know, popular DJ guy, you know, say things like, it's another scorcher here in Corpus Christi <laughs> this morning, folks. Um so yeah. So anyway, I wonder if we I, can I, get I, a Gatorade to... sponsorship for next round yeah. of Cinema Ball right. because we are yeah. sports yeah. heroes. Absolutely, like that. We are true athletes. Yeah, you, are, know, you know, and you need to replenish e- those e-sports. electrolytes or whatever it does. Yeah, yeah. Esports e- players are beginning to be respected as athletes. You know, one is like on the the new cover of uh, ESPN magazine or whatever. I feel like the next step is. Cinema ball, cinema ball players being recognized as true athletes. That's yeah, the next and cultural we, step in that. 
absolutely. We yeah. start getting interviewed about like our daily routine, how we stay at the top of our game. Uh, but anyways, yeah, mm-hmm, I'm glad mm-hmm. that you mentioned the judge because the, the, my final thought about this was that, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I wouldn't have noticed this because I was living in that moment. But this film smacked me in the face with such a, <laughs> such a meaty fish of nostalgia for listening to the radio in the summertime with everyone else there was the yes. um, the immediacy um of listening to the radio and knowing that you know a significant portion of you know people in your town in your area were listening to the same thing they were hearing the same song that you were right then they were hearing the same you know uh cuckoo like local car commercials they were listening to you know booger man and the beast and and the morning zoo or whatever at the same time um (laughs) that y'all were radio in its former primacy as a method of communication and community has obviously dissipated in a way that we will will never get back i mean we we also talked about uh or we used to talk about like water cooler conversations right so you know everyone would watch a tv show on a certain night of the week because that's when it was broadcast there was no dvr um you know there was no and, and you know, there were also stream or whatever and and there were also there were also only like three networks that anyone <laughs> watched anything on so like that's the odds it. of other people in your office having watched the same thing were pretty high. It's not like now where there's, you know, 150 different channels that people are watching things on. Yeah. So, you know, we absolutely still have those water cooler conversations, but they're happening online and they're happening at, you know, asynchronous times because we're all watching shit when we feel like watching it. Um, But I, I just, I, I was overcome by such a wave of nostalgia because I remember being a kid and all you had to like there was there was nothing going on it was endless summer days and someone would have like a little radio and you would just lie out in someone's backyard or hop on your bike and and go somewhere and just do the things that kids do which is you know both everything and nothing um but that kind of very equalizing shared experience of the radio just brought it back for me and i i was like yeah i mean i can't remember the last time I listened to terrestrial radio. It had to have been when I'm when I was in my car going somewhere. And even then, I'm usually listening to you know podcasts or streaming stuff from um, from my phone. But it's probably in my car, like on the, you know the way to work or an appointment or whatever. And I just thought, yeah, there was a way um, in which I felt like young people owned the radio um, back in the day. But now, if I listen to anything, it's probably NPR. I'm so old. Um, but yeah, like it's, it seems like the province of, of older people, which it is because we all grew up and we're all old and crotchety now. Whatever. I loved I loved this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, yeah, on that note, let's move into our uh, our wrap up section uh, with uh, with a round of Fab slash Furious Five, where we each run down five things that we loved or hated about this film. Uh, Ebony, you can go first. Yes. Okay. So I have a, a combination of Fab Five and Furious Five uh, this week. First four things I absolutely loved. Uh, and then the last one, the thing that got on my last damn nerve. Okay. Fab number one, 
the names in this movie. So good. <laughs> Billie Jean Davy, Banks Davy. I, I'm not, you're not getting the full sense of it because I'm not giving you the Texas accent. Putter Jacks. <laughs> yeah, Pie. Putter Jacks is so good. Yeah. <laughs> you, yep. you just, you can't, these, these names just, you know, occupy your mouth. They make you, you know, just all the vowels. I loved it. Hubie Pat. It was so good. Okay. Uh, Fab Two. Detective Ringwald, who is, you know, played by Peter Coyote, is is solidly on Billie Jean's side. He's actually horrified, you know, um, as the as the the action gets going to realize that he should have taken her more seriously when she came to him for help earlier. Um, and he is completely just disgusted by Mr. Pyatt, you know, who he is, what he suspects and knows the guy has done, um, but can't really address because Mr. Pyatt is ostensibly the victim in the situation. Um, but you know, there's having a conversation and detective Ringwald says to Mr. Pyatt about the fact that he won't, just cough up the $600 and just do what's right and end this. And he says, you won't pay her, but you'll sell her picture. And that was just such a great moment, you know, um, talking about like ownership of the image. And yeah, I'm, that's <laughs> only partially what the movie was getting at, but there was such a larger conversation to be had. Um, because once Mr. Pyatt does recognize that he can, in fact, sell Billie Jean's image on posters, on T-shirts, you know, this giant effigy, um, you know, on, on bumper stickers, it's a one more way for him to own her and him for him to dominate her. And so when, you know, Detective Ringwald, you know, uh, sort of forces him to acknowledge the hypocrisy of that, that it isn't about the money, like you won't pay her, but you'll sell her picture. So good. Fab number three, Peter Coyote. As I said, dude always brings it. Love him. You know, I, yeah. I I don't know what else to say, except I'm never upset to see Peter Coyote in something. And then last fab, <laughs> the fact that the um, video recording device <laughs> that Lloyd, <laughs> amateur filmmaker, is using in this film is a beta movie model. Right. Just reigniting the, the beta versus VHS underneath side I mean, wars. It is, <laughs> it is unquestioned it is unquestionably the superior format. There's no doubt about that. So Lloyd Lloyd made the right choice. Lloyd absolutely made the right choice. I mean, that just shows you what a yeah, like how much how much he's concerned about the quality of his exactly. product. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't we didn't we didn't get to talk much about Lloyd. Uh, we didn't talk about him at all, but I just want to briefly say mm -hmm. so yeah, like he's he's such a fascinating supporting character, you know, yeah. played by Keith Gordon, who has gone on to become a director a filmmaker in his own right. I especially recommend his film Waking the Dead with Billy Crudup and Jennifer Connelly. I think it's a lovely and haunting film. Um but you know, also known like at the time he, he was also in, like, Christine, where he played, like, the, Stephen King's Christine, where he played this, mm -hmm. the loser nerd kid who the car go, goes on this murderous rampage to, like, defend. And so seeing him in this role where, you know, he's more confident, he's he's still super, like, quirky and, you know, but but more confident and um, and just thinking of him as, like, yeah, like this is he's just the kind of dude who, you know, if he were a young person today, he'd probably be like a like a, a, a YouTube creator or something. But with yeah. all the, you know, all the like high end equipment, the, the, the like highest quality cameras uh, and everything, um, just that that appreciation Lloyd has for the for the finest 
tools of the trade. I like that a lot. And I liked his character a lot. So, yeah, so those were my, my, my fab four. And then my furious one, <clears throat> to bring me up to five, is the captioning for this movie. So I watched this on Amazon, and I was yeah. horrified and infuriated by the lack of care shown with the captioning. Y'all, this is not, this is not optional. Don't do a half-assed job. Um, it, you know, for the hard of yeah, hearing, for the deaf community, like this is unacceptable. There was one, li- the one line that I wrote down was dumb son of a bitch is what the characters were actually saying, but was written as dummy, vicious pig. And I'm like, that's not the same thing. It's, it's yeah, not the and, same and thing. And this is not, and it wasn't even a one-time, like that drove me, I, I, that made me so angry as well. Like mm-hmm. it is a constant thing throughout the film where the captions, like the language in the captions is kind of. I don't know, softened or sanitized yeah. or something. And it's such a disservice to people who may need to rely on the captions to to understand the story and interpret the, the characters mm-hmm. because language like word choice matters so, yes. so much. And, you know, this is a case where this is not like, you know, in the in the past when some movie that was rated R in the cinemas would be airing on TV and every every viewer hearing or otherwise, you know, would get kind of this like sanitized version of it where the language, you know, one of my favorite examples um, is from RoboCop, which has RoboCop has a, a number of hilarious <laughs> alterations between the it theatrical release and the, yeah, and the TV release. But the one that sticks in my mind the most for uh for whatever reason is um is the actor Ronnie Cox who plays like the evil you know head of the OCP uh or whatever he um he uh is telling he's like trying to threaten or intimidate uh, uh one of his underlings and telling him all these stories about all the horrible things that other people have in the corporation have said and done to him and um you know he, he in the in the film he says something like you know they even called me shithead or I don't know something like mm-hmm. that um but in the in the film in the in the brought in the broadcast version it's hilarious <laughs> that he ends he ends this like this like list this liturgy of like things that people have said and done to him with by saying they even called me airhead it's like <laughs> it's spectacular oh, but the, but but this is this issue uh, yeah as you say it's like it's unacceptable to yeah. to to treat um, the hard of hearing or other people who for, may, for whatever reason want or need those captions, uh, you know, to give them like a, a, a categorically different experience of the mm-hmm. film in that regard. It's 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 really messed up. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What about what about your uh, Fab Five? Uh, all right. So, yeah, let's do mine. Um, all right. So so for one, uh, one thing that I loved about this film is uh, that the characters, uh, Billie Jean and her gang, sort of make a, make a kind of home base for themselves at this uh, the ruins of this mini golf, uh, what had been a mini golf, um, you know, park. And I think what I, I think it's just to me, it's it's just rife with kind of symbolism and and power because because to me it's sort of I don't know maybe maybe the reason I love it so much is that it sort of suggests like an end to childish innocence and like uh, uh, the characters kind of become making that journey to becoming more fully realized in the people that they that they are or will be as adults um 
for what just the imagery i think of like a ruined mini golf park is just is just fascinating and um yeah i i just love that so much um uh, number two, the the ending of the film, uh, the way the way in which it harkens back, of course, to the story of Joan of Arc, um, and and the way that it has, in my mind, some ambiguity to it. Like I feel like you know, in these final scenes, and I'm, I don't want to necessarily say exactly what happens because I do encourage viewers to or listeners to to watch this film for themselves. But but I do feel like there is a certain ambiguity in Billie Jean's face and, you know, in, in just that whole sequence at the end, you know, as things are kind of coming to an end such that, you know, the film doesn't like spell out how she feels or what she's thinking in that moment. And I actually really like that. I like that it, it, it lets that moment kind of be hers in a way and, Mm -hmm. and lets her kind of, kind of keep it. Uh, yeah, number three, um, I have to also give props to Peter Coyote, such a, you know, just one of those actors who it's a joy to see in things. And I especially loved about the way, uh, what he brought to the character of Ringwald, um, the, the sense that he conveys of, of Ringwald's, um, admiration for Billie Jean and her crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my favorite moments in the film is during the, the, the mall the cartoonish kind of mall escapade sequence when as Billie Jean and is trying to make her escape, uh, they, they let loose all these marbles. And so you have the, the police who are chasing them kind of like struggling to stay on their feet as they're running over these marbles, exactly like you would see in like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. Mm-hmm. And as he, as Ringwald is like himself kind of trying to stay on his feet, he, he's looking at uh, toward Billie Jean with this kind of look of admiration <laughs> on his face. Like good job, kid. You got uh-huh. us good. And also later, uh, there's a, a little moment he has with, I think, the DA, uh, where um, so Binks uh, during that es- during their escape kind of uh, you know makes the cops kind of stop uh, with with a toy gun. Uh, he, you know they they don't know immediately that the gun Binks has is not real, and the DA says uh, says later the kid got the drop on you with a toy gun, and Ringwald just says admiringly. Yes, sir. I believe he did. You know, <laughs> now like when like a typical movie cop would be like, "I'm gonna get yeah. those kids. Bring, yeah. gonna bring them in." And he's just no. He's just like, "Yeah, yeah. I believe yeah. he did." Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, number four. Um, you know the class dynamics in this film. I do want to say like it. I do appreciate when we see people living in like trailer parks in yeah. in in movies. Like, um, I-, I thought of another '80s film with a with. Uh, such a hero uh the last starfighter the Mm -hmm. main character in that is this video game whiz who who lives in a in like a trailer park i think and um yeah like i just you know i just feel like we like we we could still use more stories about poor people uh certainly not just poor white people poor people of color uh, Mm -hmm. as well but but just you know anytime um such characters are kind of um validated and, and centered in film and we actually get to see the kind of you know the, the the way in which they live which we do a little bit um in scenes the brief scenes that take place uh at like billy jean and binks's home yeah. um i just you know i just i just really 
I appreciate that. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, yeah, these people deserve to be on screen and to have, you know, stories about them told and to be to be the hero sometimes. Yeah. Um, number five, you know, is kind of it's not like a like a furious five. It's more like a like a little bit of a fail five, I guess, in my mind is is uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, that the the rallying cry for um, Billie Jean and her whole movement is essentially fair is fair. And I just I, you know, as as much as I I, I really was excited about them and, and their 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 movement, their rebellion, and everything. Like I just felt, I just found that um, rallying cry too milk toast to, to be <laughs> yeah. to be one that I could really imagine young people yeah. getting like fired up about. You know, so I just uh-huh. wish that I just wish that 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 had been a little sharper and that they'd come up with something that resonated a, a little a little more. But I mean, that's you know, admittedly, that's like a minor gripe uh about a film that for the most part i i i really enjoyed and appreciated awesome Uh, awesome so now it's time for us to render our verdicts on this film using ebony's brothers patented 100 star scale uh the film rating technique rapidly being adopted by true cinephiles around the world you can find our if you you can bet that if Siskel and Ebert were still alive and doing their show, they would have tossed the thumbs up, thumbs down That's right. in the can a long time ago and been like, "We got to start using this 100 star system." Um, you can find our full list of episodes and our rating history in the document linked in the podcast description. All right, Ebony, how do you rate The Legend of Billy Jean? Well, unsurprisingly, Carol, I am unable unable unwilling either it doesn't matter yeah uh to to have any kind of true critical distance and i say this knowing that you know i rarely rate anything below like a 75 and usually much higher (laughs) than that anyway but i just i i'm completely unable um to really kind of you know objectively assess this film qua film for me it is an emotion. It is an ethos. It is. It would be like me trying to, you know, talk about my childhood blanket, you know, and whether it actually stands up as a blanket. It doesn't matter. It's my childhood blanket. So I am giving this film uh, 90 stars, and I'm only holding myself to a 90 purely because they could just have found, as you say, a better rallying cry than fair is fair, which I'm uh, even as a kid, like I was never going to shout. <laughs> yeah. Know? But and, and since that's kind of, you know, it, it's not a huge deal, but it is, you know, very important to the 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 kids who are shouting it. You know, I'm, I'm taking off some points, but firm 90. And if I were being honest, if I was doing this show by myself, I'd give it 200 stars. I love Woo. this movie. I mean, I definitely understand that. Like, and the, the way in which, I mean, th- there's a way in which this film, you know, yeah, if I had seen it, you know, when I was younger, which I didn't, mm-hmm. I feel like it would, it would in a sense occupy the same uh, kind of space in, you know, in my, in my heart or in, in my mind that that um that, you know a lot of like uh music videos that i saw yeah. when i was very young do where it's purely about just like the feeling that the song mm-hmm. creates in you know in me when i hear it and the way that the images you know might kind of just become kind of ir- uh, irrevocably kind of intertwined with with 
the song, the music, you know, the feeling. Because, I mean, you know, this film really, I mean, it, it really, Billie Jean has that, like, 80s pop star look, you know, and, and there's definitely, I mean, there's a Pat Benatar song on the soundtrack, mm-hmm. there's uh, Billy Idol. You know, there are moments where this film does itself feel a bit like a, like a music video, and there's yeah. definitely images in it that would have been uh, just perfect in a music video. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I can't say, you know, what I'd be giving it if I had a relationship to this film that had started in my youth. I recognize that I would have loved this film. You know, even seeing it now as an adult, like, uh, I, it, it still resonates with me on some level. I, I feel like it's, it is a, uh, a great film aimed at young people that respects them and, you know, also, you know, and thus kind of respects the audience in general. And, um, and of course I just love the, 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 the idea that, that, um, I mean, because Billie Jean herself is from such like humble beginnings, you know, the sort of implicit in this, the, the kind of idea the, the the maybe naive but really like exciting idea that any of us by just standing up for what's right could you know are essentially being like heroic or could become yeah. could become um, a, a hero of, of sorts um, so I'm gonna go ahead and give this film an uh, 80 stars love it love it all right Ebony well traditionally this is where you'd ask me to reveal what film we're gonna discuss next however, because you have won this round. That's right. And Wait, because- give it a second, Carol. Let that, yeah, let's, let that sink let that in. Sink in. in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, please continue. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, uh, because you have won this round and because we both have an awful lot on our plates at the moment, it is time for Cinema Ball to go on an indefinite hiatus so that we can focus our energies on other more urgent matters. Like our new podcast that is Strangers on a Train. <laughs> it's a more <laughs> high stakes version. Where we each, each week we, we, kill, we each kill somebody for the other person <laughs> as a favor and then come back and discuss how well, how well that went. I'm into um, it. I'm into yeah. it and I'm ready right. to go. No, yeah. I, I will miss doing this show with you yeah. weekly. Although it's not like I won't still talk to you every day, but there's no, something special about this time. I look forward to Cinema Ball returning. Um, I am a little worried that the extended if it turns out to be an extended break between now and the resumption of the show just gives you longer to come up with a real like firecracker of a selection for a goal film but i will live with the anxiety i can't wait for us to come back yeah me neither this show is so much fun to do i love getting you know the opportunity to watch films both that are completely aligned with my interests you know and (laughs) and also those films that are a bit off the beaten path for me but that often when I watch them I I come to you know appreciate something about them and of course discussing them with you always you know is stimulating and leads to new thoughts and reflections and insights so yeah it's been an absolute pleasure um All right, so that's going to bring the Cinema Ball field to a close for now, everyone. Thanks so much to Simplecast, which hosts this podcast, and our flagship show, Feminist Frequency Radio. Thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Norales. Most of all, we really want to thank you, all of you who have listened to and enjoyed this show. We love that you found our silly excuse to talk about movies worthwhile. So thank you so much for tuning in. You can continue to find us on Twitter. I am at Carolyn Michelle. I am at Ebony Astor. And, of course, you can continue to hear us on Feminist Frequency Radio every week. Till next time, 
keep punching snakes and sword fighting with immortals. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. I wonder if we can get a uh, Gatorade sponsorship for next round of Cinema Ball because we are sports heroes. Hey, Cinema Ballers. If you've been enjoying this weekly dose of movie mania with me and Ebony, you should check out our big sister podcast, Feminist Frequency Radio. Every Wednesday, join Anita, Ebony, and me as we unleash our irreverent and only occasionally educational feminist opinions on the hot pop culture news of the day and the media we think you should be paying attention to. You can find Feminist Frequency Radio wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And hey, if you like what you hear, sign up at d.rip slash femfreak to get early access to each episode, hilarious bonus content, and exclusive backer rewards. Tune in and find out what everyone is freaking out about.